0: Hello, and thank you so much for giving this episode a chance. If you are a continuing listener, I appreciate your support. If you're a first-time listener, welcome, and I hope that you really enjoy this episode. And today, I speak with Bob Wagner. Bob is a guy who works for the Department of the Army in search and rescue, but also specializes underneath uh, nuclear detonation and the aftermath behind that. So in this episode, we talk a little bit more about the Russia-Ukraine kind of stuff and what possibly could happen if it were to, in the United States. So I really hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I know I enjoyed speaking with them. I want to go ahead and apologize. The video, for some reason, I think it's the government, for some reason, did not transfer over. So there's no video in this episode, only audio. For those of you listening only on audio, it won't affect you at all. But for those that watched on YouTube, I do sincerely apologize. And I'm going to get this fixed. I'm going to try to figure out what the issue was. But as of right now, the only thing I can blame is the government. So... I do apologize, and I really hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. You ready, bud? Let's do it. All right. Well, I'm glad to finally have you back on, Bob. How you doing, <laughs> It's only
1: been, what, uh, well, it feels like a few weeks, but only been a couple months. It's
0: been a couple months, and a lot has changed since you were last on.
1: A lot changed, like, overnight.
0: Yeah, a lot has. So, let's go ahead and talk about um, some of the changes that have recently happened. Like, let's talk about a little bit what we discussed in the previous episode on january 5th and then we'll talk about oh sorry dude it was focused on me it's fine bud no it wasn't focused on me it was focused on me. oh well it happens <laughs> um well, let's talk about a little bit of what we discussed in the first episode and then how it can relate now to what is relevant and going on
1: yeah you want me to lead in
0: yeah you go ahead and lead in with this
1: yeah so um obviously we had, I felt like we had a great time last podcast so I would encourage everyone to go listen to it even though it's 3 hours long uh, a lot of, a lot of, <laughs> that's a really long podcast um but we sat down and one of the key things I think that we let in with was the research I did on the domestic nuclear attack threat at the Naval Postgraduate School right which at the time I mean and we we just looked it up it was January 4th 5th around that time frame we we did that uh, podcast at the time the idea of the United States actually facing a nuclear attack threat just seems so far-fetched, even for me, even the guy researching about it, right? It's almost, and I I think, I remember us talking about it, and I talked about it at that time, almost like it was this fictional idea that by studying it, we could get better in other areas of emergency preparedness. And then, all of a sudden, you know, Putin, and I'll be the first to admit, I didn't think was going to happen, invades the Ukraine, and then next thing you know, he's escal- you know, making threats of nuclear escalation uh, towards the United States and towards the West. So overnight, this n- domestic nuclear attack threat became a real thing again, and it hasn't been since the end of the Cold War, which you know it ended you know the early '90s, late '80s, early '90s. Um, and all of a sudden, my research was relevant in, in a disturbing kind of way, in, in a way that I'll, I'll even admit that I was like. Wow. I mean, I think every researcher wants their their research to be relevant or have an impact, but I always recognized the implications of mine being relevant, right? Like it's mm-hmm. really bad doomsday stuff. And all of a sudden it was. Um, and, and so I guess what I'm saying there is I never intended for that or, or would have wished that upon the world. Um but all of a sudden, my phone started ringing, right? Because people knew that I'd written about this., uh, the Naval Postgraduate School had just done an article on uh, an, an, on another article that I had published in the Army's Countering WMD Journal about urban search and rescue after domestic nuclear detonation. All this stuff was just kind of thrust into the limelight and, and in, into relevancy all of a sudden. Um, and you were the first person I thought of because people started calling me, people I hadn't talked to in years who knew I studied some of this stuff and also that I have an interest in geopolitics, geopolitical affairs, international affairs, foreign affairs, foreign policy, international security, people who know that I studied at the Naval Postgraduate School, like I said, who hadn't contacted me in a very long time, were, were calling me and asking me what I thought was going to happen. Is the United States seriously facing a new nuclear threat? What What is going on? What do you think is going to happen? Will Russia actually launch nuclear weapons at the United States? And you were the first person I thought about, because I thought, what better way to kind of Talk to everyone or reach everyone who's kind of been contacting me and asking these things. What better way to get to communicate with them than to sit down with you again and let's jump into it? So, I guess that's what we're going to do today.
0: We definitely are. I'm actually excited because obviously I have some questions as well. So, well,
1: you, you know, remember you what know. happened last time when you got a little crazy with the questions?
0: When I, I started asking a lot of questions, I love conspiracy theories. <laughs> like, I've got my own conspiracy theories behind Russia, Ukraine. We <laughs> don't need to discuss those because I don't want to embarrass you. But the power went out to the house, and I lost all that stuff. So we had to redo the entire episode. Well, it's because
1: we started talking about um, Mark Lowenthal, who I yes. who I, I don't know, but I've I've interacted with that out of the Naval Postgraduate School, who was, I want to say, deputy director of the CIA for analysis at one time. He's written a lot of books, mm-hmm. very well known man in the intelligence community. And we start talking about him. All of a sudden, power went out, and we lost we lost the first show we recorded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so that was definitely the U.S. government's uh, business. <laughs> I'm telling you that right now. So, all right, so let's go ahead and dive into, I'll. you can tell me, no, you don't want to answer certain questions, but you can also tell me that you want to answer certain oh, questions. Oh, you know, I got to be careful. Yeah, I, have, I obviously understand. Do you think there is a real world possibility that Vladimir Putin will press the red button for nuclear detonation in the United States?
1: Launching a nuclear attack against the United yeah. States. What a massive question to try to answer. Um, it's a yes or no, (laughs) gosh, man. Well, you know, and it's funny you say that that way, because sometimes I feel that that is probably the biggest question that I've had people reach out to me and ask Mm -hmm. disclaimer right off the bat. And I say this to them and I'm going to say this here today. My area of expertise is emergency response to a nuclear incident, not preventing one. I'm not a nuclear deterrence expert. I'm not an international security expert. I'm not a foreign policy expert. Um, my area of expertise is very narrow and it's limited to homeland defense and emergency response to a nuclear attack. That said, I have studied this issue and I I do have somewhat of what I would consider an informed opinion. So that's what I'm offering you. I'm not an expert. This is just an informed opinion from somebody who studied some of these things uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School and and then, of course, after that in, in postgraduate research on my own. Here's what I think. I think that the overall likelihood of Vladimir Putin and or uh, an element of the Russian government launching a nuclear attack against the United States remains overall very low. However, you have to consider the potential consequences of even one nuclear weapon being used against the United States. They're immense. And so even though the overall likelihood probably remains very low... It has increased a little bit, and that increase, that small increase, is very concerning because even one weapon touching the United States, the consequences are massive and unimaginable and would change everything about the world as we know it, uh, unarguably, right? Um, I think that—here's what concerns me. A lot of experts had said that, so right now it's known that Russia has cut off diplomatic communications, at least with the Department of Defense. A lot of experts say that concerns them because when we're not talking with the Russians, there is an increased chance of a miscommunication happening, and that that leading to a nuclear event. So that concerns me. What also concerns me is you have to consider the history here. When you are the president of Russia, and you appear weak, you get deposed. That's what happened to Gorbachev, mm-hmm. right? He appeared weak, uh, weak towards the West and and elements of his own government.
0: Wasn't he the one that was poisoned, or was it that? No, 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 no. You're che- you're thinking of Chek Alexei of-
1: Navalny. I want to hope I'm saying his name right. He's the current uh, political opponent of Vladimir Putin in Russia. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and so there is, there, there's also reports, too, that members of the delegation, well, I think even one of the Russian oligarchs who participated in the, some of the peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, uh, they found out that they had been poisoned during one of the talks recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for some reason, and that's a whole other topic we could get into, the implications of poisoning for um, the American security apparatus and emergency responders like us who respond to those sorts of things. But um, without going down that road, if you're if you're Vladimir Putin and you appear weak in front of your people, you run the risk of being deposed. Now that his invasion has not gone the way that he had hoped or that he thought it would, he the the world knows that his army is weak. They know that his national security apparatus is weak. His ability to project power is now weak. If that somehow is translated into public opinion of him back in Russia, he runs the risk of being deposed. And a dog that is cornered tends to bite. So put yourself in his shoes. If you are, or now uh, you now appear weak at home and you are facing the possibility of being deposed, and the only way to project your power, because if they depose you in his case, and again, I might be being I might be making a far-fetched estimation here outside of my realm of, of true expertise, but in my opinion, he's taken this so far that if he's deposed, it's probably going to cost him his life. So, if your choice is between being deposed and being killed or pressing the red button and reprojecting your power, what are you going to do? The Don't press the button. You're going to press the button because you're going to die either way, right? Or mm-hmm. something bad's going to happen either way, and yeah. at least you might remain in control if you press the button. So that's my concern, and that has been my concern from the beginning. So all that being said, I still think that the overall likelihood is very low, right? Because everyone understands the implications of using nuclear weapons and the use of nuclear weapons were effectively deterred for well since, you know, the Russians had them in I want to say 1949. That's a very long time. We're looking at about an 80-year period here where, um, roughly, the 70 years or 80 years? Am my math off there? 80 years. About an 80, 70, 80-year 80 period where uh, the use of nuclear weapons has basically been deterred or avoided for the entirety of their of their existence, other than Truman dropping two of them on Japan. Um, And so a strong argument could be made like, hey, we we went all these years without a problem, and and their intentions were tighter, arguably, at certain points, so why would this be any different? Um, So I I, I agree with those estimations that overall the the likelihood remains low. Everyone understands the potential consequences, but it's that dog backed into the corner, you know, because a lot of experts are saying Putin doesn't have an off-ramp or doesn't have an easy off-ramp to get out of this this war that he's started. And there's political implications for him doing so back home. All of these things worry me. So, I guess what I'm saying is, once again, the overall risk is low, but it's el- even just that slight elevation of the risk that has occurred is enough to concern me significantly because of the potential consequences. Is that fair enough? Yeah, that's fair. enough. That's answer. a very long answer, but it's a really long answer. But it's I, a terrible question to try to answer.
0: It's a hard. It's a hard. That's a hard answer to. That's a hard question to ask, to expect a small answer. My biggest yeah. thing for me, obviously, and I would assume that a lot of people would agree with me, it's the effective of leadership from our country, because obviously it wouldn't have happened if there was a separate president in there, because you don't know what cards, my personal opinion, you don't know what cards he's holding, and he's going to be crazy enough to do something a lot harder than just applying sanctions that are not just going to be harming their government, but harming the people there as well in Russia. That's my personal
1: opinion. So just so I'm understanding what you're saying, when you're talking about who's holding the cards here, are you talking about? The United States. The United States.
0: United States. Like with Joseph R. Biden, the former vice president.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, here's what I will say. I do feel comfortable saying um, is is that what happened in Afghanistan with the withdrawal. Kabul. Yes, mm-hmm. obviously, in my my professional opinion, did fuel into some of this, right? Because it, it projected the United States as weak, and everybody's watching us. I, that's how we ended the last podcast. If you remember, it was, it, you asked me, you know, what's your closing thought? What's one thing, you, if you could talk to the American people, what would you say? And I iterated how important I think it is for... Americans to be unified right now because our adversaries are watching and I'm, I mentioned a friend overseas who'd made the comment to me she said you know I hope you guys get this figured out because the world's relying on you well now now we've seen that now yeah. we, they, we've seen that in action right and that's why I was encouraging you know people to set aside their political differences and learn to be civil again because the rest of the world is watching yes and I think what happened in Afghanistan, and and again, this this isn't just my opinion. This is based upon what I've heard. Uh, Doctor Seth Jones is somebody who comes to mind. Who's somebody I really admire. He was one of my professors. Um, he has even made the assertion that what happened in Afghanistan made the United States appear weak, and is what has fueled some of the boldness we've seen.
0: Yeah. And I think I think also a lot with the national politics that we have. A lot of that stuff, like what you just said, not getting along with people, not being able to have civil conversations and civil duties with with like with – use this small example of – and I won't get too sidetracked with this because we, we still want to speak about what you're talking sure. talk about. Um, look at like school boards with parents. Look at what, what teachers are wanting to teach kids versus what the parents want the teachers to teach kids. I've had my own discussions with teachers and talking about um, – the teacher went to school for a reason and let them instruct your child and not the parent let the sure. make the decision. Well, sorry, but you're in a public school and you're. Well, your we we talked there and we dug into that a little bit, we could, right?
1: Yeah, we do. We, I believe we did, but. The political the, element, there, there, the po- there is a political element to a, all that. And and, a, and I said, I made the argument that politics aren't always a bad thing. That is how we, that that's how our society, or, yeah. or not our society, our system of government is designed. That is the say that, that the citizen has mm-hmm. in how they are governed. And that's a good thing. It's there for a reason. Yeah. And what you're seeing is just a reflection of that. And I, I don't think that's a bad
0: thing. Correct. And if you're Vladimir, Vladimir Putin, which he has said in some of his meetings as well, as you look at your country, you can't even control your country how do you expect to be telling me what to do in mine? Well, sure, Which absolutely. I do, I do get that with what he's saying, because it's like, you look at our country right now, a lot of people seem divided. Well, seem, and he's watching. It's yeah, what you're getting at. Watching. He's yeah.
1: watching. But you also have to remember the context there, and you have to remember that a man like Vladimir Putin doesn't necessarily view the world the way you or I view the world, or an American views the world, or an American politician views the world. He has a very different worldview. And that his worldview is built upon you know, hundreds of years of Russian history, um, which, and you can trace their history, it's very uh, imperialistic, totalitarian. I mean, that's just what they know. So, yes, while he is making those comments, he's also making those comments, those comments are coming from his worldview, which is just very different from a Western or an American worldview. So, I think you got to keep that in mind, too.
0: So, what do you think would be the next steps for your profession going on from here. Do you or, think what that, do you mean by that? What I mean by that is do you know do you think that there's going to be a change in not just the delivery, but the importance of the position that you're in because of what's going on right now? Does you that mean make more sense?
1: With what I what I'm doing like with my research wise or with, with uh,
0: research and also the training oh. and you'll be receiving.
1: Oh, so like what I'm doing with the with the military right now, with the army. Correct. Correct. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that last time, how, um, you know, I work in the Seaburn Response Enterprise. Our, our job is to p- potentially um, respond to, to assist l- state and local civil authorities in the event of a nuclear attack or a related event. And I will say it, it has become or is going to become more nuclear debt focused or refocused, if you will, uh, over the next several years I I, so I what I would what I will say is this the Biden administration just released the 2022 national defense strategy or at least um, they briefed the classified version to Congress and there's a a fact sheet that they put out on what's in the national defense strategy what's going to be in the publicly available one and homeland defense is priority number one they have an ordered list and priority one was homeland defense now they also mentioned in keeping pace with china too and it's really it's really interesting right now if you you i'd really like to catch mr kirby he's the, the current uh, pentagon press secretary or spokesman it's not his actual title i can't remember what his real title is but that, that's what his job is i like to watch his pentagon press briefings that he has every day and if you listen to some of the stuff that's said in there you know The terms he's used recently is we consider China a pacing threat. We consider Russia an acute threat. Uh, Acute meaning immediate threat, China being more of a long term uh, protracted threat. Um, And and they name Homeland Defense priority number one in keeping pace with China, which I find interesting.
0: Real quick, it's uh, you talking about John F. Kirby? Yeah. Okay. He's the Pentagon press secretary.
1: Is that his official title? I thought it was yeah. like special assistant to the Pentagon or yeah, the or the Secretary from, of Defense or something. From, but
0: from what I'm seeing right now, it says Pentagon Press Secretary John F. Ken, John F. Kennedy. It's yeah. John F. Kirby. Yeah. So
1: and I, he's actually somebody I really enjoy watching. I like to watch his briefs every day. Um, he does one around three o'clock every afternoon during the week. Yeah, um, so, sorry to ruin your flow. No, I'm, I'm glad you did that. Um, yeah, because that's somebody I would encourage, or something I would encourage folks to watch. Hey, of course, it's hard if you if you you know work a normal job to try to to to. I tune into that every day, yeah. but it's something I like to watch. Um, you know, something that just popped in my mind, too, that I wanted to bring up was going back to the world, paying attention. Um, we just passed the anniversary of President Reagan being shot. He was shot in Washington, D.C., and the I think it was the U.S. Naval Institute made a post about it, and they mentioned the fact that after— President Reagan was shot, which had nothing to do with the Russians, had nothing to do with any other country. After he was shot, Russia seized upon the opportunity to put a little political pressure on us or military pressure on us and actually moved some of their ballistic missile submarines closer to the United States. So that's just a prime example of the world is watching what's mm-hmm. happening here, and e, whether it has anything to do with them or not, they're gonna, they, they are watching and they're gonna take advantage of it whenever they see an opportunity. So that kind of just you know hits home the point I was making of we need to be more civil with one another and we need to be careful how we treat one another, because the rest of the world is watching and and some some of our adversaries are waiting for their opportunity to pounce.
0: Which I think is the reason why it's important to have these types of conversations with each yes. other. Yes, I think it's going to make it a lot easier. Because I, I mean, I definitely, I would like it if people from a differing opinion would like to come on and talk. And somebody just kind of gives me their own political opinions and tells me like what they think will be best for the for the country and for the world. Whatever you think. And I, I think but you also, should. Yeah, yeah, as well as you should. And I would really appreciate it if anybody would like to do that. Heck yeah. But also so what you're talking about with the world watching, that brings up a huge bearing to the civilians of the United States or the citizens of the United States. Because I think that a lot of that is not really, that is not talked about at all in school growing up. You have that pride of being in the United States. When I was growing up, I still had that pride because our teachers talked about it. You know, do the Pledge of Allegiance every single morning. They don't even do that in most schools now, from what I was told. They don't do the Pledge of Allegiance. It's You don't go out and do the flag ceremony like every day growing up in elementary school you don't we had that whole you know every every day a different group of kids got to fold the flag they got to raise the flag up in the morning and then they got to bring it down at night a lot of that came with pride in being a US citizen a lot of that's gone well it's and so in a lot of the schools and, 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 and if it's brought into it
1: well here's but, what here's what I'll say hey, at a certain point there are folks who have a problem with that and they will point to the dangers of nationalism And where that can lead us to. And they do make valid points there. Um, I think the answer is not necessarily... Because it's a very American principle, right? If you don't agree with those things, I I believe you should be allowed to disagree with them. That's what makes our country uh, what it is. uh, A a democracy, even though it's not a pure democracy. But that's what makes our country democratic. So if if you oppose those things, I think folks should be allowed to dissent. I think that the answer here is not to introduce nationalism in its pure in the pure sense of the word and when I say nationalism I'm not talking about patriotism but I think that patriotism should be instilled through civics and civics education and that's there's actually an initiative I believe in Congress right now between it's a bipartisan initiative between I want to say it's an, it could be both uh, both the Senate and the House of Representatives, but I, I want to say it's the House of Representatives where members of Congress from both sides of the aisle have come together and are advocating for a return of civics education in schools because we've seen that's the pro, that's where a lot of the civility issue comes from. And so I think you can instill a healthy level of patriotism. By getting back to civics education, because the civics part says that we we're going to disagree, but we're going to disagree, but that's okay. That's actually encouraged. But here's how we do so in a healthy manner and in a way that makes us all better. I think that's the answer.
0: So, getting to the nuclear detonation stuff.
1: That's the dog. All oh, the dog. <laughs> you can let her in if you like.
0: You want to? Yeah. Let me, let me see if I can. Dog, oh, big dog, how high? Hi. All right. You better be good. All right. Oh, Sorry she'll, about that. she'll be an angel. So, for those of you just listening in, I have a, uh, a little pit bull. She's about five years old. Her name is Delilah. She's absolutely precious. So, um, getting back to the deton- nuclear detonation kind of stuff, more important question what nuclear warheads do you think he would be using to attack the United States if he chooses to?
1: Ooh, uh, th- that right there, I is you're you're quickly approaching the limits of my expertise because I'm not. Again, I'm emergency response to uh, a nuclear. Event or nuclear detonation is is what I studied. As far I'm not an expert in in nuclear arms or non proliferation. Um, what I will say is this. What I do feel comfortable saying is is this. And I actually just wrote an article about it. Uh, I'm hoping it'll be coming out in the Strategy Bridge uh, for anyone listening. That's another good uh, podcast and journal publication that kind of talks about some of these things. Um, what what I do feel comfortable saying and that I've been oh, researching and writing about is so for the last 20 years or so roughly in the United States since 9-11 really and and it really actually started a little bit before that um, well it's one of the books I have here with me uh, Tom Clancy's The Sum of All Fears is my Mm -hmm. favorite book Tom Clancy wrote about it and this was in the 90s about the improvised nuclear device threat so after the fall of the USSR of the Soviet Union everybody was like oh that's great we don't have to worry about another country firing nuclear warheads at us anymore, intercontinental ballistic missiles, basically. We don't have to worry about the, And those are big weapons. Uh, a nuclear weapon like that is really, really big, right? We don't have to worry about that anymore. It's done. However, this thing called nuclear terrorism kind of popped its head up. So then what we became worried about was, because after the, the USSR fell, they lost... I don't want to say control, but lost. There were, there were some lapses in accountability with some of their fissile nuclear material and their weapons-grade you know, nuclear material that, that there was a concern out there. And actually, this is actually a really cool Indiana history point um, because Senator Richard Luger was involved. It, it was, he was a senator, right? I want to make sure I'm saying that right. Oh, I know this stuff, but as soon as I get on your show, I'm always worried that I'm going to say something wrong just okay. uh, ad-libbing it. So I, I always like you to fact-check me there.
0: Richard Green Luger?
1: Yes, he was a senator. Senate, right? yeah, senator. he was a senator. Uh, he yeah, and he there was an act, the the um, uh, Nun Lugar dominici Act, um, that actually uh, addressed some of these concerns. But he was kind of the kind of led the charge. He was a Republican senator from Indiana um, who actually mentored Barack Obama on some of these things. That's actually a, an interesting fact most folks don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually kind of cool. He he's he's the kind of politician in my opinion, that someone should strive to be like, because he was somebody who never compromised his values, but at the same time was very capable of reaching across the aisle to some, like a young Mm -hmm. Senator like Barack Obama, who he saw potential in to address some of these things. Um, but anyways, without getting, getting off track, um, the nuclear terror. There, there was there was a, a lapse in accountability, or there were some issues in accountability between some of the fissile or and or nuclear or weapons grade nuclear material that Russia had, especially in some of its states that it had lost in in the um, dissolution of the Soviet Union, and so there was a big concern that this would fall in the hands of terrorists, uh, and that concern was exacerbated by nine eleven because then uh, it, it, we knew that. Osama bin Laden wanted to get his hand, hands on a, on a nuclear weapon. Now, when I say a nuclear weapon, he wasn't going to make a ballistic missile. We were concerned with a, what, a much lower-yield improvised nuclear device. That's what it's called, an improvised nuclear device. Uh, and so for the, for the last 20 years, the nuclear threat, or what we've considered or been concerned with in in nuclear security, is the improvised nuclear device threat, or the terrorism, nuclear terrorism threat. And like I said, that's a much—that would be a much smaller device than Russia shooting a missile at us. So that's been our concern, and that's what we've thrown all of our attention towards and all of our resources uh, towards. Well, now, all of a uh, sudden—and I just wrote—this is what I said in my article—in 2018— Secretary of Defense uh, James Mattis, who's obviously somebody we talked about last podcast that I really look up to, who was Secretary of Defense for a period of time under President Donald Trump, he produced a new national defense strategy, and I want to say on page one, it, it explicitly states that terrorism, international terrorism, is no longer our primary concern. We are now going to shift to be focused on Russia and China and what, what they called great power competition, or basically going back to uh, interstate competition that we saw during the Cold War. That's, our, that's what our concern now, not terrorism anymore. Well, if, if over the last 20 years all you were worried about is terrorism and, and your concern for nuclear terrorism followed suit, Now you're like, okay, well, the nuclear terrorism threat is dead. We don't have to worry about that anymore, right? Because terrorism's, you know, the the national defense strategy has effectively said, you know, that's not our primary concern anymore. Now, of course, it didn't explicitly state, it didn't state that threat's gone forever. We're not going to, you know, terrorism's gone forever. We're never going to worry about it. But you kind of have to think about how things are viewed in our government or in our system of government, right? It's very competitive. Everybody in the government's always competing for resources. So if you are one of one of any of the number of, of agencies within the government, you're always competing with everyone else for resources, so you're going to go with what the boss says is the priority. So naturally, everybody said, okay, well, nuclear terrorism must be dead because terrorism is no longer our primary concern. So we're not worried about terrorism, The nuclear terrorism must be a, a, a moot point too. And the argument that was made by a lot of experts, and even some that I really respect, I mentioned Dr. Seth Jones in his book, he wrote Three Dangerous Men. He, he made, makes this argument to a degree. The argument was made that, well, like we said earlier, we went through the entire Cold War without a nuclear war erupting or with a nuclear attack being effectively deterred. Everyone in the world pretty much agrees that the consequences of using a nuclear weapon would be existentially catastrophic, both to whoever was on the receiving end and who was on the sending end. So... We're, we're not going to worry about that because everyone pretty much agrees that would be terrible and no one would be crazy enough to do it. Russia wouldn't be crazy enough to threaten us, not in 2022. They wouldn't be crazy enough to threaten us with nuclear weapons. We all know that that's crazy. We all know that that wouldn't happen. And then what happened? Once his invasion, when, once Mr. Putin's invasion started not going his way and we realized that his army was weak. By the way, we didn't think it was that weak. Most of the intelligence community, I don't care what they say, didn't think it was that weak. Now he's he's kind of sh- overplayed his hand, right? And we know what he's working with. What does he have to fall back upon? What's his ace in the hole? Nuclear weapons. So naturally, of course, that's what he's going to to fall back upon, and that's what happened. That's and so uh, and, and and I say that in that paper, I'm like everyone thought that this nuclear attack issue was dead. It's not. We all thought that the consequences were so great, no one would be crazy enough. Other than, And when I say everyone, I'm not talking about rogue states like Iran or North Korea, right, who they're obviously—Iran is, is has been pursuing it, and we're in talks with a new nuclear deal with them that was backed out by Donald Trump. And then North Korea, right, we know—and uh, and, and, and fun fact, just to throw in there, like most folks don't know that— um, the, the CIA actually discovered a nuclear reactor in the Syrian desert, and the Syrians are very closely a- aligned with the Russians, by the way, in the Syrian desert. That was The purpose of it was to, to try to create n- nuclear weapons-grade uh, nuclear material. And it was actually destroyed by the Israelis. This was in, I want to say in 2008. Most folks don't know that. It was kept very quiet. even though this, And it's actually on YouTube. The CIA produced a video about it. It's, um, there's actually a podcast out there, Intelligence Matters, and they talk about this. And a, a woman who was heavily involved with this, she was like, when they asked me to make a video, a publicly available video about it, like that was just not what we did at the CIA. We didn't tell anyone what we were doing, so we thought it was crazy. But it's out there; you can see it on on YouTube. Um, but, anyways, I, I guess the the point I'm making here is, yeah, the rogue state threat was always a thing, but like we never really we 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 couldn't fathom that um, Russia and China would actually threaten us like in the way that Vladimir Putin kind of overtly has. Now that said, we we've known for a while that China is trying to like. Increase its nuclear capabilities and develop its nuclear, uh, or or mimic our nuclear triad. Like and and if there's one thing this conflict has revealed is that having having nuclear power is still very much relevant in 2022, right? Because the, some would make the argument that that's the only thing preventing us from steamrolling the Russians right now because the, we're we're afraid of that threat. Um. Um. Yeah. I, you know, I I, I I, I, honestly, to be honest with you, I forgot what the original thing we were talking about. The question was um, the, we were what talking about th- what, what, of what he would he use. use. Oh, and I was talking about the terrorism threat. So, yeah, this it, it kind of caught us off guard. Right. Because for the last 20 years, it's been nuclear terrorism, nuclear terrorism, nuclear terrorism. And actually, I mentioned in the article and I just discovered this a week ago. I was doing a little bit of research for this article on nuclear terrorism. And I want to say in 2006, the Bush administration released a joint statement with Vladimir Putin that said we're going to work together that that nuclear terrorism is the chief nuclear threat facing the world, and we're going to work together to fight it. Talk about ironic, yeah. right? Extremely. So, but that, that just tells you how far down in that rabbit hole we were and how off guard this caught us. So up to this point, everything we had been doing was focused towards nuclear terrorism, and then— even though I don't believe the war on terror has effectively been, been declared ended, politically it ended, and everybody's like, okay, well, it, it, it would be too costly for the enemy, or I don't want to say the enemy, but our adversaries to threaten us with nuclear weapons. Instead, they're going to they're gonna come at us with cyber attacks and liminal warfare and in the margins, and, and, and that's where we're going to focus, and that's where we need to be focusing. And then all of a sudden, we do get an overt nuclear threat, and everybody's like, crap.
0: So with talking about that, let's go ahead and speak on, because obviously from a first responder standpoint, where is the, the attack going to take place? Obviously, we don't know. You don't know. But what we can always think about is where's the worst place they can attack? Well, it's the natural.
1: So, it's always been the natural target. I mean, again, always, I-
0: always natural targets, but also like talking about places where like in, Colu- like in Columbus, I believe it's Columbus or Seymour, there's a VX plant. Where they discharge a lot of the VX because you can't just blow you can't take VX and and discharge of it and make it to where it disappears. You have to bury it somewhere. Well, you here's, to, here's stuff what like I would that like. That's what I'm talking about.
1: Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider that. It, like,
0: I'm not saying it's a nuclear threat, but that's the type of stuff that I want to be thinking about on. Where possibly would this happen at? Would he pick a target like a large major city? Would he pick a target where it would have a larger fallout of like an electrical plant? Or uh, well, where it, would it be? It, at?
1: Here's here's what I, I will say. And again, the, we're, we're approaching the borders of my expertise because I'm I'm not an expert uh, in nuclear targeting or nuclear de- deterrence. And that is a whole field, a very interesting yeah. of uh, field of study. Uh, one of the books that I brought, Fred Kaplan's The Bomb, uh, talk, goes into a lot about this and talks about the um, basically the the National Strategic Targeting List. I believe it's what, it, what it's called the NSTL or something like that. Um, I, I'm not an expert in any of that, but that is very interesting. But what I what I will say is that um, major population centers are obviously the most vulnerable, um, and it it kind of goes back to what I had brought up to you earlier about what I'm kind of, what I'm writing a book about right now um, the Uh, Mighty Derringer, the big nuclear terrorism exercise that happened in Indianapolis in 1986. And it was a joint effort between the CIA, the State Department, Department of Defense, uh, FBI, FEMA, all these different agencies that actually did this exercise in Indianapolis most folks have no clue about. Uh, And I think it was Gizmodo.com a couple days ago. I want to say this past Wednesday released a video on YouTube that they got uh, their hands on uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, that is actually a simulated news report of the mm-hmm. detonation occurring in Indianapolis. That's
0: and what I haven't pulled up on my
1: phone. Oh, it's fascinating. It might be a link that you you might want to put on here, but I can tag that in. Yeah. Um. So I've been writing a book about that. i been. I'm not. I'm not in the writing phase at this point. I'm still in the research and and outlining. Uh, But I've been doing a ton of research. There was a gentleman who was researching it, and honestly, I didn't know he had passed until Gizmodo said it in their article, but he passed. He wrote a book, and I want to say it was released in 2012, um, called Diffusing Armageddon. It's about uh, what what we now call the uh, nuclear emergency support team. used to be the nuclear emergency search team. Um, And another interesting fact that a lot of folks don't know about Indianapolis is that in the 80s, say the 80s around the same not around the time the exercise actually occurred there were threats of nuclear terrorism in indianapolis and that team actually had to come sweep indianapolis i want to say at least one of i'm pretty sure it was two of them and at least one of them involved robbery i want to say really, where terrorists uh, or someone had threatened to explode a nuclear device in downtown indianapolis uh now you would think there would be a lot of records of something like that even with like indianapolis police department all that so far that i found, no. Um,
0: Do you think that they're just kind of confidential, where they're just not going to release anything like that if the public were to find out?
1: I think that at the time, it was such a high-level thing, and they didn't want to freak people out that a lot of things were kept under wraps. I want to say at that time, too, because you got to remember, this is pre-9-11. Yeah. You know, post-9-11, it's nothing for IMPD or any local police department to be working very Closely with the FBI and, yes. and the national security uh, agencies, that wasn't necessarily so much of a thing back then. And so I think there's a bit of that 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 occurred too, right? And if you're yeah. if you're the local IPD cop, you're like, this isn't my problem. This is the FBI's problem, right? Or you know whoever's. So I think there's a little bit of that too. Uh, but it's some very interesting uh, history, and it's history that happened here in Indiana that most folks don't know about. Um, and that's why I've been I've been working on this book. Um, there is a website that has a lot of information on it, and it has been mentioned, I want to say, in the Indy Star before. There, there's there been publications made about it, uh, but no one's written a book up to this point. So my my goal, or what I'm mapping out right now, and I'm doing all this research for, is a book that will... Uh, the name of it will be Mighty, Mighty Derringer, The Secret History of Nuclear Terrorism in Indianapolis, and it will talk about Mighty Derringer, and uh, if I can get enough historical record the actual nuclear threats that were made in Indianapolis in the 80s. Very cool. Yeah.
0: That'll be definitely an interesting read.
1: Well, and the question there, and where I'll probably go with with it from there, once I compile all that research and, and get that together, is the, the next question will be, and they actually raise it in the Gizmodo article, is, so what did we learn from all that? Because it, it was one of the most serious exercises the government ever did about this. So... Kind of what you're saying, what are some of the lessons there that can be learned for emergency responders? So I guess what I'm saying is I don't have an answer for you right now, but I'm going to, or at least I'm going to try to.
0: Yeah, that's perfectly fine. The biggest yeah. thing is with trying to find out with those types of exercises, the thing that I've learned in some of the trainings that we've done, like once a year they would do a training at the mall and then they'd have the FBI involved with it as well. Yes. And the biggest thing I learned was communication is key. And that's goes that goes along with everything. Yeah. Everything in your life, obviously. Yeah. We talked about before we did this. Right. Communication is key. If you don't have that communication level, because a lot of the guys, their pride gets in the way. uh, Guys and gals, their their pride gets in the way. They don't want to sit there and be like, those guys are just firemen. I'm not going to talk to them. Or the firemen be like, those guys are federal guys. We're not going to talk with them. It's just more of, hey, you know something that I don't know, and I know something that you don't know. Let's sit here and talk and have a conversation. A lot of that stuff, I feel like now, is kind of getting in the wayside, getting behind us. That we're just more of just having open conversation and being able to help each other in different ways. Because obviously a couple of years ago at the place I work, we started doing an RTF, which is Rescue Task Force, mm-hmm. and then it's firemen that are having to put on bullet-resistant vests right. and Kevlar helmets. And we're going in and pulling out people, obviously, because with the whole MCI stuff, mass casualty inc- incidents, uh, the uh, more of the public knowledge of school shootings and mass shootings and stuff like that. So that forced us to have more of a relationship with the police department. And that's forcing us to be able to... Effectively become better at our job, and if if we're going to be just sitting here discussing a lot of these types of ordeals that a possible, the slim chance of it happening, I think having those types of trainings, those exercises. I mean, doing an exercise like that for uh, Mighty Derringer—that was kind of kind of crazy. It makes it gets my conspiracy mind thinking of well, what else are they doing? Huh? Like, well, it, what it, other yeah. things are they doing? But I find I find that stuff extremely interesting. And the it biggest is. part is, is what did we learn from it? So obviously, you don't have the answer for it right now, which is perfectly fine. But it just means we yeah, got to do another podcast when I that, get this out. That's exactly what that means, <laughs> which I'm perfectly fine <laughs> with. So the biggest thing is, what can we learn from this episode? with what's going on the most at the most relevant time. So with that being said, what are going to be some of the pull away pulling away points that we that the listeners will be able to get from listening to you talk about the possibility of nuclear detonation in the United States.
1: Wow. Again, that's another huge question. It's it's um,
0: enormous. I know I need to get better at asking more precise questions. No, 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 no. no. Questions. You
1: ask really good questions. That's not that's not the problem at all. It's just that you ask a very good question that doesn't have a simple answer, which I like. I like answering those yeah. types of questions, but um, it's not that it puts puts the the speaker on the spot, but it does make you think about what you say. Without beating it up too much, I would point folks towards the article that I recently had published in the Army's Countering WMD Journal, which I think that came out after you and I spoke uh, last. Um, I think it did. uh, It may or may not have, but I would would point uh, folks towards that because it did have some explicit lessons, at least in the context of urban search and rescue, that local responders can take away for such an event. Um, The key takeaways I think there were if there was one recommendation that I could, that I could make that I, the one conclusion that, that I can draw that anyone who's listening to this should keep in mind is that if this event happens, you're going to need a lot of people. And I'm not talking about hundreds of people. I'm not even talking about thousands of people. I'm talking about tens of thousands of people, even on the rescue side alone, you're about from a, from a response, responder. from a response perspective, okay, response perspective. if okay. I'm uh well, and it's interesting too. Um, so, it's just funny how the world works and how these things all come together. Um, FEMA, and, and I already know where this is going to go, so I don't even wanna, almost don't want to bring it up, but FEMA was going is, is about to release its latest planning guidance for responders in regards to a nuclear detonation. And they were actually going to have what's called, a, um, I think it's called a national engagement seminar. I was supposed to sit in on it where basically members of the public or experts in the field can can um, give feedback on, on the draft they pro- I hear the dog snoring. Oh, is she snoring? Oh, no, it's fine. She's good. She's fine. Um, yeah, she is. yeah. I must be boring. <laughs> I'd be snoring too, bro. Dude,
0: don't worry about it. She's sleeping.
1: <laughs> so they're getting ready to release this document that gives guidance for local responders on what to do. And even FEMA has kind of seen the writing on the wall that we need to be stop worrying about nuclear terrorism and we need to reorient to talk about big things um and so they were getting ready to do this national engagement seminar and it was scheduled for january 6th and a conspiracy theorist someone got upset about it and said this is coincidental why are you talking about um the potential for a nuclear detonation on the anniversary of january 6th and so fema canceled the seminar and i haven't heard anything since i don't i'm not going to mention the gentleman's name who's heading that up. I think he, he was put on under, he's probably put under some, a little bit of pressure and he made the right decision uh, because some folks did r- have some issue with that. Um, that being said, here we are a couple months later and this is relevant. This is important. So without going down that rabbit hole, it's just interesting to me how, again, once again, domestic affairs mm-hmm. have an effect on our security as a whole and what's going on. Um. But, <laughs> so I was, I was supposed to sit in on that and, and, and provide some feedback. And that was, that was one of the big things that was highlighted is just, you're going to need a lot of folks. You're going to, because if, if we're going to try to rescue anybody after an event like that, you're talking about putting responders into radiation fields. Oh yeah. So you're going to have to wear the suits, right? And I don't know if you, do you do hazmat? Do you do oh, yeah. hazmat?
0: Well, Everybody, everybody at a department that's full time, they have to be hazmat tech certified. Okay. Okay. So, so you've worn the suit. Oh yeah, obviously. So what, honestly, real quick story about that. (laughs) I did my hazmat tech class shortly after I got hired full time and I did, my. I don't know if I should say a lot of this. Anyway, oh well, I passed my class. Obviously I took my test. I passed my test. I didn't have the evidence that said I passed my test, but I said, I passed my test and (laughs) We got called for uh, a, a hazmat cleanup. So some some lady was mixing pool chemicals in her sink, and it oh exploded oh in, in her sink, and it blew off the ke- the kitchen cabinets off the walls. Yeah, and it blew out the window. She got blown back like 10, 15 feet. So they called us in to go in inside the house to clear it out. Basically, they my at the time my battalion chief turns to me and he goes, "You just took your hazmat tech class, right?" And I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Did you pass?" I'm like, "Yeah." I think so. And then he's like, suit up. And I'm like, oh, cool. And I'm like, wait a second. Like, I don't, I have the least amount of experience. And he said, you're the one with the most fresh mind right now. And I'm like, all right, you got it. So we go in there and obviously, but I didn't even have all my, I didn't have the actual certificate that said I passed, but I tell you, I did pass anyways. But that was actually a really different experience for me, obviously, since in the training, they obviously obviously have you up in a level A suit. You got your SBA, your mask on. And you're just kind of walking around just kind of investigating things, just kind of putting the pH paper down, trying to see what you can get, trying to take the chemical, the bags of whatever she was using or whatever they were using. But being able to to move around, maneuver around on that, and as much as you're not trying to touch things, but trying to rescue people out of that situation would be completely different. Obviously, yes. these people will have possible possibility of glass shards in them. So when they go to touch you or you're touching them or you're trying to move objects out of the way, you can get cut, open up your suit. There's a lot of dangers involved with that. And obviously the suits that everybody has guaranteed that they're probably 15, 20 years old. <laughs> yeah. And what's, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not lying here, but right for any type of a detonation that's going to go on now, are these guys ready for it? Are oh, they ready for the response?
1: That's a huge question. That's a huge research question. No, that's a huge question. It's something that, that is within my area of ex- expertise and it's something that I've been studying and, and trying to write about. Um, going along with what you just said, I mean, having had that experience, you know that operating in those suits, especially under stress, I mean, think about the amount of stress you're going to be under Going, res- just responding to an event like that. You're going to get hot. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to have work rest cycles, especially if it happens in the summer. Yeah. Right. There's going to be work rest cycles. So you got that you got to worry about. You got to be rotating people out because of that. Not to mention the radiation exposure issue. You 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 know you have an accumulated dose that you can get that's safe. So we got to be rotating people out for that.
0: And your hot zones as well. Your your distance that you're going to be covering is going to be a l- immensely farther. Yes. So it's not just all the work you're
1: going to have to do to get down there. We see this yeah. in exercises now.
0: Miles away, yes. depending on what it is and and, and how. What the kind of wind is going to be happening. There's what your a lot of factors. Are. So many factors. So let's, you mind if we talk about a couple of the factors? Yeah. Obviously, you'll know a lot more better of an idea of what the factors would be. So for some of the basics of what factors would be, uh, obvious is wind. You can yes. have daytime or nighttime because mm-hmm. the pressures are different. the ber- barometric 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 i'm gonna say bariatric bariatric
1: you've been (laughs) on an ambulance haven't you uh
0: actually no (laughs) but we talk about it a lot we need a bariatric cut. Um, the barometric pressure is different for certain chemicals. There's a book uh, called an ERG book, emergency response guide book, which I have one in my truck that I just, every once in a while, I just put it on the highway. (laughs) It's it's fun to look at the chemicals. (laughs) Yes. Oh,
1: I'm calling you nerd because I am a nerd. I can say that.
0: Yeah. It's fun to look through and like, Hey, you know what? You know, Hey, whoever your passenger is, you just tell them, you shoot them the book and say, Hey, look up this number on there and you explain it to them. And, um, then you have your, you have your wind, you have your barometric pressure, you have your temperatures depending on the temperature and some of them, uh, we'll talk about. Um, you have your uh, ignited sources, so if it's a low flammability or a high flammability, and there's just there's so much that goes into it. Yes. That it's definitely like even if you're going into into a scene, you're you're talking maybe my my opinion from my, just my thought process of it. You're not getting in there for the first couple hours. Because you're going to be sitting there if trying even. to figure out, if, yeah, if even, you're sitting there, you're going to be investigating, you've got multiple entities, units, uh, departments, federal, local municipalities coming in, and they're going to be trying to dictate, okay, what is this chemical?
1: Well, so in, in, in the case of... Uh, and then researching it and trying well, to figure out how, well, it, how, what's you, your distance. Nuclear you, forensics is an interesting um, subject that comes to mind, because obviously, if, if an event like this happens, while... While a response is being made, the United States government is also going to be trying to figure out who's responsible, definitively, who's responsible. And so there are elements of our government uh, that their job—and it's, it's headed up by—or a partnership between the FBI and the military and a few other—like Department of Energy. But their job is to get a sample of the fallout uh, or the ground shine where this event occurred because all fallout and ground shined are— or is? Am I using? I don't know. If I'm, I'm a grammar uh, freak there, and I don't even know if I'm messing that up or not. But groundshine fallout—that it, it is leftover remnants of the device, and it's radioactive. And so their job is to get a sample of it, and basically do lab testing on it. And by doing that, they can identify the isotope, and that will tell them they they can almost figure out down to the date. Or the batch that this nuclear material was made from, and where it was made from, they All can right. and they can identify who is responsible. And so that's a if you're the president of the United States and your country has just been nuked, you're going to want to do something about it. But you want to make sure you're punishing the right people. And that this actually became an issue. And it, this actually, like if you read Tom Clancy's *The Sum of All Fears*, that's that's the plot of the book. The way the terrorists detonate the device, they do it in a way that it makes the, the the American government think that they're under attack from Russia. And so these terrorists are trying to ignite a nuclear war between the United States and Russia, but it was them. So it, again, that's a, that's a novel, it's far-fetched, but it's an it's interesting to think about. And so you you bring you just bringing that up makes me think about like the the, the role of, so if you have law enforcement listeners too, it's interesting. It's nuclear forensics and fi- you know, getting a sample so we can figure out tell the president of the United States who is actually responsible. It's just interesting stuff.
0: An, an easy way to find out if a, if it's a bad chemical that you can't be in if you're a fireman, you just wait for the cops <laughs> to drop like flies. The blue canaries? Yeah, the blue canaries. You just kind of look around and be like, "Ooh, we should back up a little bit because obviously they're going to be the first ones in most of the time of, of any distance because it's not going to be like an affected area is in only Indianapolis. It's it's let's just say cuz we're let's say we're just south of Greenwood. It's gonna be falling out even farther. You're talking a few miles of a, of a radius. Well, I, th- I think and we talked about
1: way. it last episode. But nukemap.com, I think, is what it's called. Did we talk about that? About that. Nuke I don't map, know. Look up nukemap. Uh, verify that if I've got that right. Yeah. Um, it's this gentleman. He has a PhD in like like science and technology history or something from Harvard. I want to say.
0: And nuke nuke, nuke yeah. map. Dot .com secrecy.com nuclearsecrecy.com
1: Uh yeah, so he runs a blog. Map, yeah. he, nuclear secrecy is his blog and then Nuke okay. Map is his the actual map and you can go on there and simulate nuclear detonations on any place on the map. It's pretty cool. Uh it's Alex kind of freaky. Yes. Yeah, he's a really interesting gentleman too. Yeah,
0: check that out anybody whoever wants to play with that. I think a big thing is going to be uh communications going to go out. I would assume that you're going to have a whole lot of issues for first responders with even trying to communicate out with radio towers and Well, what about the there's
1: we talked a little bit about this I think, maybe we did in the last podcast, but the EMP effect, electromagnetic sure. pulse, right? And and what the implications that can have for communications. So there's a lot of complexity here. And there's a lot of things that are going to go wrong and I, and it's funny, when we were talking about this, again, in previous podcasts, or when I've talked about this before, It's we always talk about it as this far-fetched thing that could never actually happen, and, and we almost talk about it in an imaginative sense, right? And It is imaginative, because it's never really happened before. Um, but now, all of a sudden, that folks are facing the possibility of this actually happening, and you, you kind of mentioned the American public, you know, it's people have a lot of questions, and, and this is, like, this is real to them again. Um, and that gentleman you just mentioned, I think his name is, is Alex, Alex uh, Wunderstein. He has he had a, a research project that ended when COVID happened. and I've been wanting to reach out to him. Alex, if you there's like a zero out of 10 chance that you'll ever listen to this. But if you did, <laughs> I want to talk to you about this project. Um, it was like rethinking civil defense or something, or he, he had a research project of, okay, what should civil defense look like? In 2020 or whatever, the year 2019 or whatever, like in, in the modern era, because civil defense was a thing. That's That was emergency management as a career field. That all came out of civil defense. And civil defense was how we were preparing the population, the American population, for a nuclear war. So FEMA and emergency management, and all your emergency management folks, that was all born out of the Cold War. And the whole purpose of it was preparing for a nuclear attack from Russia. And then it just evolved over time to you know being more focused towards disasters right and especially as the with the fall of the Soviet Union the, the, the nuclear um, or at least the great power nuclear threat basically went away and so all these folks you know what are we going to do now well hurricanes were a big problem and so then hurricane FEMA started focusing mm-hmm. on hurricanes and then uh, which has become an increasingly bigger problem right um, so it's just interesting if you trace the there's a really really good article written in Homeland Security Affairs. I quoted it in the paper I just wrote. It'd be another good one for you to post and for the audience to listen to. Uh, It's entitled, How FEMA Could Lose the Next Big War, or something to that effect. As a gentleman, is a graduate of my program at the Naval Postgraduate School, it's a terribly fascinating article. Uh, Like I said, I just quoted it.
0: How FEMA Could Lose America's Next Great War.
1: Yes. Um, And it's fascinating. Give that a read, because it's all about how, you know, in modern, and I say modern times, or the last few years, it's long. It is very long. And, and it's <laughs> academically written too, right? So it's, it's, it's going to be a little dry. Mm-hmm. But the information is great. And it's about how... With when the Cold War was over, we basically forgot about civil defense and and FEMA has responsibilities for preparing the population, not just for nuclear war, but mobilizing the population to support a great war like World War Two. Like we talk about you talk about that when you talk about World War Two history, right? Like uh, the Defense Production Act that was used during covid to to ramp up production to to uh, handle a pandemic that was used during World War Two. FEMA has responsibility in the law for helping mobilize the population to handle uh, a, great, a, a great power war. But all of that's kind of been pushed by the wayside as we've not faced that threat, and other threats have been more pressing, like hurricanes and disaster response. And that's what this gentleman talks about. And he was already raising the, flag, the red flag saying, hey, bad things are happening on the horizon with China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, all, our, all of our great power competitors um, and near peers this could be a problem for us in the future and now again because of the events that are happening in the ukraine people are taking this seriously now we're starting to seriously but it's just funny to me it's, it's it i don't want to say funny it's all, it's terrifying but it's ironic because when we were sitting here just a couple of months ago all this seemed so far fetched and i was mm-hmm. saying some of these things and here we are 2 months later and it's like uh, hey bobs what, what were you saying uh you know a couple of months ago what was all that again uh
0: you know it's it's relevant now and it's mm-hmm
1: freaking scary man
0: it is so let's go ahead and talk about what do you think can happen in the next two months <laughs> what do you think possibly could happen in the next two months obviously uh,
1: okay all right again i have to put the disclaimer in there i am a homeland security homeland defense oriented uh, professional right that's my area of expertise that's what i studied i didn't study military affairs i didn't study foreign affairs uh, so again, you're 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 getting you're getting the disclaimer up front that that's not necessarily my expertise. It's, I just have an informed opinion. And my foreign opinion is, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot that could happen. I do yeah. think that, and and again, the information that I'm drawing this from is isn't privileged. This is I'm not getting special information from somewhere. I'm not getting this from intelligence reports. My information is just as good as the uh, any other member of the public, even though I work for the Department of Defense, Department of the Army. By the way, these are just my opinions, not the official opinions of the Department of the Defense, the Department of the Army. I got to say that yeah, too. Throw that in there. Um, I should have said that at the beginning, um, but. I think that everything is pointing towards the Russians. Vladimir Putin has realized that his invasion is failing. it's It's not working out the way that he expected. Um, actually, in the book I've been reading that I mentioned um, by one of my professors Three Dangerous Men by uh, Dr. Seth Jones. Um, he actually profiles uh, one of the, the the chief of staff for the Russian military in there, Gerasimov. I hope hopefully I'm saying his his name right, Valerie Gerasimov. Uh, He's actually one of the gentlemen who's gone missing in all this uh, subsequently. Um, So obviously things didn't go the way the boss expected them to, and they're realizing that. And so uh, I was actually reading this morning the Russians are putting down landmines across the highways, and a lot of experts believe that is evidence that the Russians are not conceding but they're conceding those areas. They realize they're not going to make a push back into them because why would you landmine something if you know you're got you going to go be going back through there? You wouldn't. So that's evidence to them that the Russians, especially around Kiev, around the capital, that's evidence to them that the Russians are going to stop uh, acting aggressively towards those areas. And I, I think, you know, from everything I've read and the evidence I've examined, that's what that suggests, I believe. I, I think that's going to be the case. Now, that, that begs the question of, okay, so what's going to happen in the aftermath? Um, I think as of this morning, the evidence was suggesting that the Russians are going to ramp up or refocus their efforts to other parts of Ukraine, probably favoring some of those southern areas where they already have a strong foothold, obviously down towards the Donbass and all where they already had a foothold. Um, and obviously, I think they recognize they're not going to be ta- be able to take the entire country. So now the question is just going to be, OK, how much of what we're currently holding can we keep? if that makes sense. Or are there other weaker areas we can try to focus on instead? So you're going to see a shifting of focus, I think. And I, if, if the big, if, if there is a trending towards peace talks or establishing some kind of agreement, it's the Russians are going to try to see what they can hold on to. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what you're going to see. But that being said, I think that, and, and, Um, uh, The Guns of August is a book I've been reading, terribly fascinating. It's about the ramp-up, the the, the first month of World War I. Um, The book was actually handed out by President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is what I was comparing a lot of this to, Um, except in this instance the Russians actually did pull the trigger. They didn't then. But um, you can see some interesting parallels in there and what's going on. The misconception seems to be amongst a lot of folks, and it's like this in every big war, that this is just going to be a short war, this is going to be a short thing, and we're just going to get this over with. I don't think this is a problem that's going away. Even if peace was agreed upon tomorrow, this whole issue with the Chinese and the Russians and, and our competitors challenging us on the world stage, it, there, there is no easy closure to this. This is not ending anytime soon. We need to be digging in for whether it's going to be a Cold War or if there's going to be proxy wars or, you know, there is the potential for a hot war, whatever it's going to be, this issue of our power being challenged across the globe is not going away. And I don't think this issue in Ukraine is going away easily. And so we, like right now, people are concerned about the gas prices, right? I mean, I think I said, I think I made, probably made the statement in the last podcast that, that I foresee the next decade being very rough for Americans. And I I, this was only confirming my my belief. So, um, yeah. And if you study the history and you study how the, the lead up of World War One, there's some very, very, very disturbing parallels going on. So, yeah.
0: So getting kind of closer to the end of this episode, because obviously we're not... Have gonna we been to talking that long? Yeah, it's an uh, hour and three minutes. Oh, yeah. huh. wow. Yeah, because what I don't want to do is like what... <laughs> I'm good with three hours, but I want to make sure people get all the information that they need in this yeah, too, and that's yeah. what we talked about beforehand too. Yeah. Um, what else would there be for anything that you would want to get out there to whoever's listening to this to uh, speak on?
1: Do you have anything in in particular in mind?
0: Well, obviously, my questions are more conspiratorial <laughs> because you know I have me. to avoid that. You know I know that, which is perfectly fine, and I get it. A lot of a lot of my stuff is just more weird. Um, a lot of the kind of things would be more leaning towards first responders, that how how would this...
1: How can they prepare? Is that what you're saying? How can they prepare for this? Okay. That's,
0: that's really more of what I'd like to know on that.
1: Well, and, and it, it raises an interesting question, too, because we, we did talk about this in the last episode, how I, t- I felt that you know the messaging of what the role of local responders is and all this is not as clear as it was after 9-11. Right? After 9-11, we all knew we're going to start yeah. ramping up HAZMAT and burn, and and anti-terrorism and mci and rtf all we're going to we're going to get into all those initiatives when it's when it's on when it's not necessarily immediately on our shores even though it is through you know with like cyber and disinformation um it, uh, the messaging is, is a lot less clear i would give the same advice that i gave the last time which is to start reading read study be up on this stuff especially if your role uh, has some parallels here if you are a hazmat guy or you are uh, um, an instant commander or a battalion chief or whatever, uh, I mean, th- th- I think that's always, list study, read, listen, listen to podcasts, listen to stuff like this, get it, don't just list, take Bob Wagner's word for it, um, you know, find out other their outlets, see what other folks think, see what they have to say, um, you know, I think the best, one of the best, uh, quotes that I could, uh, share, it was actually spoken to me by Bob Brown, who's, uh, I, I, I as far as I know, is still a big player. He's a sergeant in IMPD's bomb squad who kind of heads up the um, state of Indiana's Radiological Nuclear Detection Task Force. For the, if, you, if you didn't know that, that was a thing it is. Um, he was actually one of my professors in a class I took in college. He, if, if he were to ever listen to this, he probably wouldn't remember that. But uh, he made a comment in the class that every good bomb tech knows that they should be watching what's happening overseas. They should be watching the trends overseas as far as devices and terrorism and, and all that because you're eventually going to see it here. And so that I would offer up that that principle applies here too. It's easy as a firefighter or local emergency manager or cop, whatever, to think, you know what, all that crap happening in Russia has nothing to do with me. You're wrong. You do need to know about it. You do need to know what's going on. You need to be following the trends overseas. I mean, let's even if it's just as simple as and I made the comment that the FEMA USAR system should be watching how these Ukrainian firefighters are rescuing people from collapsed buildings hit by missiles. Where else are you gonna see that in the modern era? Where else are you gonna draw lessons like that? Like what a golden opportunity, because it could happen here. Mm-hmm. So we should be watching that. We should even even if you don't want to get involved, you don't want to study the politics of it, the geopolitics, the international affairs. Okay. This is you have never had a better opportunity to see what it looks like when a missile Hits a building with people in it, and you got to go save them. Probably hadn't thought about that before. You can watch it now. You can watch it and learn the lessons for yourself. So that's what firefighters need to be doing. That's what emergency managers need to be doing. You need to be watching that stuff. Okay, a collapse happens in a war zone after, after some kind of missile strike or anything. Or... Um, the the burn issue the chemical like the, the mci stuff the mass shooting like there's lessons we are literally watching a war online right now this, this this will probably go down in history up up to this point as one of the most publicized wars you know that that the average person has access to mm-hmm. we should be watching that as responders what valuable lessons we can learn through the footage alone um so that's that's what we need to be doing we need to be studying and paying attention to what's going on and seeing what lessons we can learn from it
0: Bob, what's a good way for people to reach out to you?
1: Um, a variety of ways. Um, I think last time you may have put my email address up there. I, you can throw it up there again for anyone who might be listening. If, if you're in your car, Solutions at gmail.com. Again, it's Circle City Safety Solutions at gmail.com. and I'm very active on LinkedIn as well. Uh, you, Robert Wagner, you can find me on LinkedIn. I, I publish things. I try to get something out once a week or once every other week that's relevant to all this stuff. Uh, and then, of course, just kind of like with your podcast, I gauge how people take to it, and you know what, and I adjust my my con- content from there. Um, and, and I, especially now that we've had this talk and and if people do have an interest and they reach out to me and say they're interested, I can get them stuff personally, but I'll also, I'll try to make more contributions online that are relevant if they see some value in it.
0: Awesome. Robert, I really appreciate you coming on, man. It's it Bobby, you man. You're right,
1: a brother. Bro. It's Bob. Bob. <laughs>
0: Bob. All right, dude, I really appreciate you coming on. It means a lot to me, and I hope I get to have you on again soon, but hopefully not in a way that is a negative way. And it's, just, it's just, like I
1: said, it's just nuts that we, we had our conversation, and then here we are. I never would have imagined. I never mm-hmm. would have imagined that what I wrote about would actually be relevant. Yes. And here we are just a few months later, and it's like, wow, what the heck happened? But, um but I'm glad that we sat down and had this talk today because we do need to be talking about it. And the next time we talk, I hope I've got a book or something that I can share with you and we can talk more about, you know, the history of this stuff here, here in Indianapolis and Indiana.
0: Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me, man.
0: So we made it to the very end of the podcast. Thank you so much for sticking around and listening to it. Please let me know what you think either by contacting me on Instagram or Facebook at more with Stumpo podcast or more with Stumpo or contacting me by just commenting on the YouTube video. If you have any recommendations or any questions for Bob, I'll be posting his email and also ways to contact him as well. So thank you so much again for listening. I hope that you guys have a wonderful day and a blessed life.